Um, the along obedience in the same direction, if I can follow up on that announcement just briefly, if you take the first letter from each of those words, you have the same letters as the mint altoids. A long obedience in the same direction, but it would be but we're just going to call the sermon series I think Altoids or something like that and uh, the book that we're working out of is written by a pastor named Eugene Peterson some of you may know him from having picked up a copy of a transliteration of the Bible or a what's it called whatever it's called paraphrase of the Bible called the message or of the New Testament and uh, Dr. Peterson um, is deceased, but had a brilliant pastoral mind. And the book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, is a working through of about 15 psalms from a section of the book of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, which were used by the people of God when they were approaching Jerusalem for a holiday. Um, so... The, the book will be available. You can get it online, Along Obedience in the Same Direction. Uh, I think the best place to get it is uh, christianbookdistributors.com. You can get it for like 13 bucks, uh, maybe a little shipping involved. Um, and then we also have a few copies on the entry table on the way in. Just drop 10 bucks in the bucket if you want one. Take one with you. Um, and... Uh, We'll be working through those Psalms of Ascent. We'll do seven of them in the fall and eight of them in the spring between January and Easter. Um, so that's going to be the two parts of this series. Um, and it's just a really, it's a beautiful piece of, of God's Word that we'll be sort of just pacing through over that period of time and encourage you to get into it. Uh, if you don't want to buy the book or read the book, just read the Psalms. That's what it's all about. So um, we'll have all that available to you uh, in the weeks ahead so that you can follow along. We will have small groups that will be meeting both in person and by Zoom to go through that material together. Um, so more about that will be coming up soon. Um, but that's something coming up that I'm looking forward to, and I hope you are too. All right. Let's have all the important people come down to the front. If you are in fifth grade or younger, you are invited down for the children's chat this morning before you go to Hope for Kids. You can come down, Mom. You can come down with if you want to. All right. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Have a seat. You're good. Yeah. Good morning. Okay, you're going to have to move your hair so I can see your name. Ellie, good morning. How are y'all doing? Doing okay? Okay. So, a couple of things we learned. It, we're looking at the book the, in the Bible called 1 John. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked in chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. In two different places, it said God is...
God is a dinosaur. No? Uh, God is jello. God is, wait for it, love. Very good, Ellie. Thank you. All right. Good, good. God is love. And he told us twice in the same chapter that God is, you can say it again, love. Yes. Right? So that means that he really, really wants us to know that God is love. And then I want to read you a verse in John, 1 John chapter 5 that is something else that God wants you to know. All right? John, the author, says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Wow. So God wants us to know two things. He wants, to know, he wants us to learn lots of things, but there's two things that I'm talking about this morning that God wants us to know. First, God wants us to know that he is love, right? He wants us to know that love is what it's all about, and he also wants you to know that you, through Jesus Christ, have eternal life life. How do we get eternal life? Who does it come through? Jesus. That's always the right answer at the children's chat, by the way. Fair, okay? So eternal life comes through Jesus. That is how God showed his love to us, how he proved his love to us. Jesus went to the cross and gave up his life for our forgiveness that we could have life that lasts how long? Two weeks? A month? A year? Infinity? That's a long time. Yes, that's how long God's love lasts. Forever. Can anyone beat up God and take his love away from you? No. He is the biggest. He is the greatest. And what he is, is love. And he loves you. And he sent his son so that you can have life that lasts. Forever. Let me say a prayer with you guys. Dear God, thank you for these precious children. Thank you for the gift that they are to our church, to our lives, to our families. We pray your blessing over them as they study more of your word and hope for kids today. Fill them with your Holy Spirit and lead them into a deeper understanding of how much you love them and how long your love lasts. And Lord, we pray your blessing over them and their teachers as they open your word, pour out your spirit upon them and guide them into, uh, well, your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Y'all can get up. Go to Hope for Kids, and we'll see you after you're done. Make something cool. All right. Hey, it worked. Good, good. All right. 
Well, if you don't have any idea who I am, I probably forgot to introduce myself earlier. I'm Pastor Tom, and we have been in a series of messages of late over the course of this summer through the last four books in your Bible before you get to the last book of your Bible. So four out of the last five, that's not bad, right? Um, and these are the books of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and hey, Jude. All right. Um, and we kind of we went and we skipped around a little bit at the beginning of the series, and then we landed in 1 John for these last few weeks. And we are in the last uh, section of 1 John this morning. And I, I tried to warn you, it gets weird. All right. John uh, is, is writing to a group of people that he has known for a long time. And I just want to remind you at this point in history, churches didn't do, didn't do this. They weren't free to assemble uh, in, gr- in large groups. They gathered in secret in people's homes because faith in Jesus Christ was illegal. They were charged by the Roman authorities uh, with the charge of atheism, if you can believe that, um, for not acknowledging the deity of the emperor. And so their meetings were illegal. They met in small groups in people's homes. And because of that, uh, they had not just, thank you, I'll, I'll get there, promise. Um, they had just not just one uh, pastor, but a pastor in every home. There was, instead of having one guy doing this, they had 20 doing this. Um, and one of the problems they faced was the, I guess you would call it the uniformity of belief. So when you, when you outsource the leadership, uh, you can get a wide variety of opinions emerging throughout the, the progression of the growth of that church. And John is trying to write a letter back to these churches and straighten some things out and also give them some sense of what's most important in, as we walk through this life of faith together. So we're going to um, look at the last uh, 12 or so verses of chapter 5 today, the end of the book of First John. Before we do that, I would like to invite you to pray with me as we just prepare our hearts for God's word this morning. God, our loving Father, we come before you as your children in search of your truth, your grace, your love, as you have expressed it to us through your word. We pray that as we open our Bibles this morning, you would open our hearts, that you would read there what we need to give to you, and that we we would read in your word that which you desire to give to us. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may fully understand your will for us, your love for us this morning. And Lord, as we come before your word, we lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts that we might be more free to encounter you here through your word today. We give you our sins and we thank you for the forgiveness and grace that are ours in Jesus Christ. We lift to you those whom we know and love with whom we are in conflict. And we pray for peace and reconciliation where it is needed. Lord, we lift to you uh, those whom we know and love who are sick, and we pray for your healing 
over them, mind, body, and soul. Lord, we lift to you those whom we know and love who grieve, and we pray your comfort over them. We lift to you our country and its leaders at every level of government, elected and appointed, and we pray for wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift to you our men and women in uniform who are serving to protect and defend our Constitution and the freedoms we hold so dear as Americans. We pray your protection over them. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way. We ask that you would bring them home safely. And Lord, we pray for those who've returned home from their service, changed as a result of the sacrifices they've made. And we pray your healing over them. We ask that you would use us, your church, to minister your grace and healing to them and to so many others. We lift up those churches that we are connected to through our denomination and our missions giving, and we just pray your blessing over them. We lift to you Paul and Elizabeth Branch in Guatemala, John and Diane Davis in Laredo, Texas, uh, Pastor Miguel and Tatiana Broche, who are currently separated um, by a great distance, and we just pray that you would bring her here soon. And Lord, we lift up Pastor Patchy and his wife Marilyn in Havana, Cuba, and we pray your blessing over them and what you're doing there through them. We lift up uh, Robbie and Joyce Hamd and their efforts in Beirut, Lebanon, and we pray your blessing over that work. We lift up Monica and Benjamin Bailey in the Middle East, and we just pray your continued blessing there. Be with us now as we open your word, open our hearts, and speak to us. We ask in Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. So, before we read 1 John 5, 13 through 21, uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to something I said a minute ago. Uh, things get a little bit weird in this section. They got a little bit weird last week. They get a little bit weirder this week. It's okay. We'll get through this. Um, and I'll just try to, I, I set the scene a little bit. Um, I, I think what, what you're about to read um, is partially the product of, of the Apostle John having spent many years in these churches with these people and their leaders, and he is referring again to something that they would have understood from his time in ministry in their presence, something they had already talked about, unpacked, and dealt with. And now he's, he's going to make a passing reference. It's, it's very interesting the thing that's trickiest about this passage has very little to do with what John is actually trying to say. It's a side comment that he makes where he's probably referring back to something he had unpacked with them previously. And so we are left, when we hear these words, with a lot of questions. And, and that's good, because so we're going to stop at the end and we're going to take your questions. So as you're reading this, if you have a question... Write it down, circle it, underline it, put an asterisk, I don't care. Make some notes. And then if I don't address that question during the message, ask it when we're done. Bring it up. Let's, let's figure it out together. Um, and I'm just going to tell you, uh, I, I've done a little bit, oh, that's, that's an understatement. I've done some reading on this passage of other people throughout the kingdom of God, both past and present, and there is a consensus as to what this probably means and, and is referring to, and I'm going to go with that. I, I am also telling you at the same time, 
we don't have 100% clarity here. So there's, there's a little bit of a, huh? And, and then we'll, we'll kind of go with the common consensus uh, among Bible-believing folks about what, what John is probably referring to. So with all that uh, preamble, we're going to get into 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So I want you to put yourself back in the first century You're in one of these little house churches that are meeting probably around the town of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, and you're the owner of the home, the the leader of your little group, uh, gets up and he says, I have a letter from the Apostle John, and this letter is going to be passed around and copied and given to other churches in the area, other house churches that are meeting, and the letter is beautiful. It's this rich, flowing language, and it uses lots of extreme metaphor, light and dark, truth and lie, heaven and hell. Um, All of these different contrasts are brought out in the writing. And you begin to think about your faith in these extreme terms. And the reason that John is writing this way is to get people's attention and to bring out the clarity of contrast. And then he just repeats different themes back and forth and weaves them in and out. And then he comes to his conclusion. And if you notice, there's, there's a couple of things in this conclusion. If you notice... Like, anytime you're reading a passage, this goes for any passage that's a few verses long by the same author, and you see the same word 
repeated over and over and over again. Take note. God is trying to say something through that author to you, to us, to our hearts. And what is one of the key words in this passage? It is the word know, that God wants you to know a few things. And you just look back through the passage, if you have it in front of you, um, you'll see it repeated in almost every verse, um, except for where he goes off on his little side note. Um, And so the first thing that we are to take away from this passage is that God wants you to know a few important things. The first thing that he wants you to know is very, very simple. You have, through Jesus Christ, eternal life. God doesn't want you walking around doubting whether or not you're in, fearing that you're out. He wants you to know that you're safe. So all of this knowing that John is calling out in this conclusion to his letter is built into the fabric of what he's saying for one purpose, that you When this letter is over, when your heart is done processing what's here, you have confidence. You have more confidence than you did before you read the letter. So the first, the starting point of this confidence, according to this conclusion, is in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to have confidence in your place in eternity. Don't answer this out loud. You're Presbyterian. We don't do that. But do you ever doubt where you stand with God? Do you ever doubt his love for you? Do you ever doubt whether or not you're in good standing. Well, what does God want you to know? You're in. You're secure. You're safe. You've made it home. You're in his hands. And no one can take that away from you. You are called to have confidence in your place in the kingdom of God. That's where John begins to conclude with this um, repetition of the word know. What's the first thing you're to know? You're good. Because you have faith in Christ, you're good. Um, and we've talked about this previously in this, in this letter. John makes a few things very clear. He says, you have been born again. I'll I'll, I'll go back through the logic of it. How much choice did you have in your natural human birth? Zero. And, And part of what John is trying to say is that's the perfect metaphor for understanding how a person comes to life spiritually. That God goes ding. Your heart is opened. It's changed. You are redeemed. 
before you even know what happened. And then he gives you the gift of faith. We talked about this again in previous messages. Uh, It's really, really clear in the book of Ephesians. That's the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Ephesus and saying that it is faith is a gift from God. So God gives birth to you spiritually. That's called our rebirth. He imbues or or instills in you the gift of faith. Your heart comes to life. And through that conduit of faith, your relationship with God takes place. And so because that faith is connected to a particular object, it's not just like, oh, have faith. you got to believe. It's faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what what it all means, that you have been connected by God through the gift of faith to this eternal being who gave his life on the cross for your redemption. So all of that, when we are engaged in that and we place our faith in Christ, his person, his work, then we can know our eternal peace. This is what God wants you to know. You are at peace with him. Um, the Bible says elsewhere, in the book of Romans, also by the Apostle Paul, that we were enemies with God. Christ died for us when we were enemies with God. We are now, because of what Christ has done for us, at peace. Peace means knowing that you are secure having confidence in your place in God's family. God wants you to know you're safe. You have a place that no one can take away from you. He wants you to be at peace. This is the answer to the entire Bible's quest for what the Old Testament called Sabbath or rest. It is Jesus. He is your, our rest. We can be at peace in him. If you don't get anything else out of this morning's message, will you please take that home with you and take it into every aspect of your life? God wants you to have confidence that you are his and that you are secure. No one can take that away from you. Have confidence in your place. Once John has established that truth in one little verse, he moves on. If you are confident in your place and you're standing with God, then pray and have confidence in your prayers. Um, It's sort of a no-brainer, right? You are God's child. You have his ear. He listens to you. He cares about you. He wants to be in relationship with you. Pray and have confidence when you pray. Know that he hears you. Um, There are a couple of caveats and a weird little aside that John takes when he makes this uh, affirmation. But let's just start with this call to pray in harmony with God's will. Jesus actually teaches this in the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray like this. 
God our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That when we pray in harmony with God's will, we are at our best. Um, I don't know about you, my prayer life often involves my will. My will be done. Uh, would you mind throwing me a little, doing me a solid, take care of this for me. Um, and what John is saying is, let's reorient our hearts in humility and come alongside who God is, what his heart is, and pray in accordance and in harmony with, with that, with the essence of God's heart. When we can do that, we know that God hears us. We know that God responds to our prayers. These are just verses 14 and 15, if I can just repeat a few words. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So John actually says both, that yes, pray in accordance with God's will, but whatever you fumble through in your prayer, you're heard, and God will take your prayer and sort of meld it in with his will and his love and meet it out in our lives. It may not be exactly the way we foresaw it, but it's in harmony with God's will, his person, who he is, and what he wants. So we're to have confidence in our prayers, to pray in harmony with God's will, and we are to pray redemptively, John reminds us. And this is the little portion where it gets a little weird, but we'll get through this. Um, if you take out the asides in verses 16 and 17, you're left with, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, he shall ask, and God will give him life. What are you to pray for in relation to your brethren? You're to pray toward life. Prayers that are life-giving, that are redemptive, that are oriented towards in improving that person's relationship with God. So if you see someone that you know and love who's messing up, get down on your knees and pray. Pray that God will restore them, re return them to his heart, redeem them in his relationship with them. Pray redemptively. We are to pray life upon others. That which is life-giving is how our prayers are to be oriented towards those around us. Um, you know, that gets difficult at times when um, life throws curveballs and we get confused as to what's right, what's wrong, what to pray for, how to pray, John just says, pray. Pray and try to pray in harmony with God's will 
and try to pray redemptively that others will move towards what is life-giving and good and ultimately found in the heart of God. And then we're going to take up briefly John's aside, which I'm going to summarize this way. And I put a question mark in this line because I'm, we, you know, yeah, you get it. Don't waste your prayers. So I, I think that's actually what he's saying, right? He's saying pray, pray in harmony with God's will, pray redemptively, pray for life and the people you're praying for, but don't waste your prayers. He talks about not praying for people who have committed the sin that leads to death. Okay. Um, there's, there's, only, there's only scripturally one place we can land with the question, what on earth could that possibly be? There, is, there are other areas of conjecture that we can throw in there, but if you're trying to derive the meaning behind what John is saying from the Bible alone, there's only one other passage you can look to. Well, it's actually in multiple Gospels, but we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's account of Jesus talking about the unforgivable sin. I, I'm not going to read the entire passage. I've pr if you have a bulletin, it's printed there at the, at the end of my outline, the entire, well, it's not actually what could fit, on that page, I recommend the entire chapter in Matthew, um, chapter 12. Um, but I think what John is saying is, is part of a previous conversation and teaching that he's had as he's worked through the Bible, the New Testament, with these church members in the past. Um, he has taught them about what Jesus said. This is, this is probably what John is referring to. Okay, and they've had this conversation, and I'm going to just kind of summarize this. There's, there's a, a man in a synagogue on a Saturday, on the Sabbath, that is blind and mute, and he is apparently possessed by a demon. And Jesus casts out the demons and restores his sight and his speech um, he healed him on the Sabbath. And there's this debate that breaks out. You can't do that on the Sabbath. That's, that's the work of a doctor. You're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, oi, they. Seriously? You can't heal a person? You can't cast out? You can't engage in spiritual warfare on a Sabbath day? You're crazy. That's what Sabbath is all about. It's all about the battle and finding a place to find respite from the battle, and re-engage. So, yes, I can. And so the debate is breaking out, and in the course of the debate, Jesus' opponents accuse him of using evil forces to cast out the demon. Like, he's obviously not of God, because he wouldn't have done that on a Sabbath day if he was, and because he did, he must be using Satan's forces. And Jesus says, oy vey, you, 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 if, if Satan is casting out himself, like that doesn't work. No kingdom can stand if it's divided against itself. And Jesus points out with great clarity, there's only one 
answer to what's going on. That is the Spirit of God. That it is by the Spirit of God that I'm casting out these demons. And then he goes on to say, and I'll read the last couple verses of Matthew 12, 31 through 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. So there you have a teaching from Jesus about a sin that cannot be forgiven or will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Let me try to frame that for you. Um, Again, lots of reading, still a margin of speculation in all of this. But here's what I think is going on. Jesus is trying to say this. If you attribute the work of the Spirit to being the work of Satan, if you're going to twist the, the hand of God in, in action in this world into being attributing that movement to Satan, you are so far gone and closed off spiritually, there really is no hope for you. And this is a really hard thing to really accept, and I'll try to put it this way. What Jesus is talking about is exceptionally rare. You may be able to identify a couple of historical figures who have demonstrated this kind of angst and rebellion and hatred and twisting of the truth towards God that you could say, there's no way. There's no way they're going to be in heaven. Maybe. But ultimately, this is not where our hearts need to be focused. John is simply saying, if someone is so far gone that they have clearly placed themselves outside of the pale of redemption, let them go. Don't waste your prayers. Focus your prayers on people who can be redeemed. I think the group of people that that is being referred to is so small, you cannot worry about it. You can just pray. Pray for everyone. Pray for Anybody that comes to mind, any time they come to mind, pray. Pray and pray. Pray in accordance with God's will. Pray redemptively for life, for the life that comes through Jesus to come into the heart of whomever. Pray. That's the message. John does this weird aside that's probably based on things he's taught to this church in the past, and now we're going to move on. Uh, There is room for questions when we're done. Um, But I think all he is saying, or what he's really saying, is pray. Pray, pray, and pray. Here's the framework of prayer. Don't waste your prayers on, on a few rare incidences. But pray. Okay. Have confidence in your place in God's kingdom. Have confidence in your prayers. When you pray, God hears you. He responds, he listens, he cares. And have confidence in your progress as a Christian. Um, I, I, uh, well, a couple things about me. I joke around a lot. 
Um, I, also, I also use what I think is called self-effacing humor. I just call it like sarcasm. Um, and I'll say things like, you know, like some, I'll, be, I'll be in a group of people and somebody say, what do you do? I'll say, I'm a pastor. And then a few minutes later, I'll, I'll say a word that pastors probably shouldn't say. And they'll look at me and they'll go, well, I thought you said you were a pastor. So, well, I didn't say I was a good one, <laughs> right? And I, I use this sort of humor. Uh, it's, and, and one of my elders actually said something to me recently. It's like, hey, you, maybe you shouldn't beat yourself up quite so much on Sunday mornings when you're, when you're preaching the word. And I'll, I'll try to frame this. I had a, a preaching professor who said there's one person you can never use as a, as a good example of how to follow God's word, and that's yourself. And there's only one person you can use as a bad example of how not to follow God's word, and that's yourself. Okay, So you will probably never hear me compliment myself from, the, from this position as a Christian. One of the reasons, a couple reasons for that, one is I have this little guy on my shoulder that taught my preaching class that's still there. <laughs> Can't get him off. Um, and the other is that I am, I am really, like, keenly aware that I am not a better Christian than you are. I am not. I, I, I'm as, what's the word? No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't say anything. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Fore and aft. Um, I am stumbling through this thing we call the life of faith, like everybody else. At the same time, I can tell you that God has made progress in my life. Like there are aspects of my Christian life that are better today than they were, I don't know, 40 years ago when it all started. There are aspects of my Christian self that are stronger than they were 40 years ago when it all started. <clears throat> what John is trying to tell you in this last concluding section of his letter is simply this. Where you are today in your walk of faith, is part of a bigger reality. And as we've seen in this letter, John uses these extremes to sort of present the contrast between good and evil, sin and obedience, light and dark, you name it, truth and lie. He uses these contrasts to try to bring to you, in this case, some confidence that God is not done with you, but that when he is, you will be complete, you will be whole, you will not be defined by the sins of the past, your own or those of others, you will not be defined by your limitations, you will be defined only by the eternal, limitless, embracing love of God. That's who you ultimately are. And John, as a pastor, preaches that truth into your present when he says, 
in verses 18 and 19, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. John is not saying you're going to be perfect in this life. How do I know? Go back to verse, I don't know, four, uh, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, he shall ask and God will give him life. John knows we're going to sin, but he's preaching into our present reality a future eternal truth. You are not defined by your sin. Your entire being has been redefined by the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Your sins are washed away. They are forgiven. You have been redeemed. And so, you are to know that you are covered by the blood of Christ. You're not sinless now, but you are sinless in your eternal place in Christ John reminds us that the battle on earth is real. You and I are the battleground between good and evil. It occurs in the human soul. That's where it all happens. You are there. You live there. You know this. The battle is real, but you are beyond the eternal reach of evil. The evil one can mess with your life now. There is a day coming where his reach will not arrive at your door. You are that person now. You have that little piece of eternity that's true and alive within you today. So when you blow it, you can return to your Redeemer. You can return to that truth. You can have confidence in your progress as a Christian by knowing that you are covered and by knowing the one who has you covered. John takes us back in verses 20 and 21 to what it's all about. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You have the living, eternal God of the universe alive within your heart because of what Christ has done for you. You are not the you you think you are. You are a transformed person. You are in Christ his forever. You are his forever. That's what I'm, I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Um, you belong to God, the eternal, true, one and only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, 
forever, alive within you, and no one can take that away. And I love, as a pastor, I just love John's little verse 21. Here's what he's trying to say. You already have alive within your heart everything you possibly need for faith and life, for confidence, security, to pray, to relate, to live. Everything you could possibly need is there in Jesus. Don't get distracted. Don't go running off to other sources of security. You are in. You are covered. You are loved. You are secure. God says you are mine. That is all we need. Take everything else away. You have the one thing, the greatest thing in the universe alive within your heart. You have the love of God alive and well and thriving, growing within you. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, uh, we thank, I forgot, we'll, we'll do the questions in a second. We pray for your confidence that you would be at work in our fallen hearts to remind us of who we are in Christ. Fill us with your spirit. Lift our heads. Remind us that we have the eternal God of the universe available to us through prayer. Anywhere, anytime, all of your love, all of your power, all of your grace are ours in Christ. Lord, may we live in that confidence just in, even in our view of ourselves that we can be reminded of who we are eternally in you, that we are not defined by the reach of evil, but rather by the reach of love through your son, what he did on the cross how he rose from the grave, how he ascended to your right hand. Lord, these are the truths that transform. May they be alive and real to each person here today. And may we live in the confidence of knowing who you are and what you have done to bring us back to yourself. All these things we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All right. Does anybody have any questions? Bill. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So the, the question is, how do you know if you are praying in accordance with God's will? And 
so a couple things. Um, one thing that, that I, I do periodically to just sort of guide my prayer is I'll, I'll pick a scripture and I'll just give you some suggestions. There's, there's several psalms that do this well, um, and we'll, we'll be going through some of those in the next few weeks. Um, but also, any of the introductions to Paul's, well, all but one, so most of the introductions to Paul's letters, so that's what uh, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, whatever. Yeah, and then a bunch of T's. Um, and uh, in his introductions, he's often saying, I pray for you, these things, and he lays them out. And so I find those to be helpful when I'm, when I'm praying for someone. I can pray, I can use scripture to kind of guide that. Uh, another way to frame this is when I'm, when I'm praying for something in particular, like, um, Let's say, let's go back to the terrible period of life when our daughters were applying for colleges, right? And uh, you, you first have to metaphorically beat them to get them to submit the application, right? And then you got to pray. And I knew where I wanted her to go, right? But that's not the right prayer. The prayer is, where did, God, where do you want her to go? Right? And so to pray for all of that, e I can even give God my druthers. Right? I can say, yeah, you know, I'd like it if you did this, but really what I want is that your will be done. So that little phrase that Jesus gives us in the Lord's Prayer is really helpful to sort of reorienting ourselves away from what I want and, and opening my prayer to whatever God wants. And so the, the mystery of whatever his will is can sort of be left in that openness in prayer. Just, all right, you know what I want. You already knew what I wanted, but you asked me to pray anyway. And now I'm just going to give it to you. And I think there's something powerful in what Jesus taught us there that's a letting go. It's a release. It's a, it's a giving God permission to, to move and to act. Um, and, and then maybe the final thing I would say is um, it's, it's sometimes easier to discern um, what isn't God's will. If, if something is obviously selfish or motivated by something other than grace, love, and kindness, and all those kinds of things, um, those, are easy, those are easy to rule out. The rest of it is kind of wide open, like you said but can be engaged through that little phrase, thy will be done. Okay? John. Yes. Yeah, the, the suggestion that we add to that, like if my will isn't God's will, that God would change my will, uh, that would be good. Um, so, other questions? Jack. Correct. 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 
Well, I guess that depends on what you mean by worldly things. Okay, so the question is if um, if the world is under Satan's dominion, as the Bible clearly says, uh, should we not pray for worldly things? Um, I guess the, 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 the difficult part of that is, is defining what, our worldly, what, is, what is a worldly desire. Like, I don't know, somebody needs a car and they don't have one. I, I don't think praying for wheels is a sin. Right? Praying for a Lamborghini might be a little bit of an overreach. Um, but <laughs> praying that you win the lottery might be a worldly prayer. Uh, especially if you have never entered the lottery. That would be a weird prayer. Um, uh, so, yeah, so let me, let me try to frame this a little bit, Jack. So the Bible tells us that the, the world is under the dominion of the accuser, is the word that the Bible uses to describe, uh, that's, that's a translation of the word Satan. Um, so, at the same time, the kingdom of God is under the dominion of Jesus. And our prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, the prayer is that the dominion of Jesus increase on this earth. So, God wants us to, like, like, we're, we've, we're stretched in several directions. He wants us to grab a hold of these eternal truths that are true now, in part, at least, but are eternally true in fullness in Him. He wants us to have a foot firmly in this world that by which we are extending His kingdom, His gospel, His love, His grace. And He wants us to... Uh, engage in this battle that's raging between good and evil that actually only rages here. So the world is a part of that. The kingdom of God is a part of that. The idea is that they be placed one on top of the other, that the dominion of the accuser is diminished in this sphere of existence by the movement of the Spirit through us. And so there are worldly things that are a part of that movement. Like we, we as a church own a building. Why on earth? Like that's weird, right? That's just, I guess, the way we do that here in this country. Um, it's not like that everywhere. It wasn't like that when John wrote. This building isn't Hope Church. You our hope church, we are hope church, that's the church of God, it, it exists throughout this world, but there are worldly things that become part of that, so I guess what I'm saying is, if the worldly thing is brought under the dominion of Christ and, and, and utilized for the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth, let's roll. Um, if it's getting in the way, Let's get it out of the way. Other questions? Ralph.
Okay, so there's this, there's this flowing writing style of John's. He's going, and in this last concluding section, he's like, know this, know this, know this, know this, know this. Oh, and stay away from idols. He ends with this weird little aside. Um, and I, I think, <laughs> as a pastor, I absolutely love that last little verse, right? Like, you've, you've given everybody the truth. You've given everybody the grace. You've given everybody the Jesus they need. Would you please get off your phone or something, you know, whatever, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> look, look around you, right? And, and so I, I think if I can sort of invert what John is saying at the, in that very last verse, it is, I, I tried to do this in, in the message, but it, it's, it's very simply, Jesus is all you need. Don't go back to the way you used to do things, you have been transformed by the blood of Christ for the sake of his kingdom, his love, his grace. You are eternally changed. Stay there. Live out of that truth. Don't go back to your past. Don't reach back to whatever was defining you before that. Reach forward into your eternal truth that is yours in Christ. And so I think that's all he's really saying um, you know, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's just a great closing line, like just really practical. Yes. In the world, yeah, yeah, in the world, but not of the world. Don't make the world or the things of this world into idols that will then control you. Be under the dominion of God. His kingdom come. Yes, very good. Anything else? Yes, sir. Yes, good Lord. <coughs> Dropping everything. Okay, so the question is, I, I said in uh, point two, the second sub-point, pray redemptively, and can I define from this passage what I mean by that? Um, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So, if I'm, if I'm praying for a brother or sister in Christ who is clearly in sin, I, I'm praying, and this, that's, I think that's what John's talking about here. Like, when you see, like, don't be surprised the, the war between good and evil is raging in this human existence. It's in every heart. Don't be surprised. When you see it, don't be, oh, I can't believe. Just get down and pray and say, hey, Lord, bring him back. Bring her back to your heart. Restore, renew, redeem. Bring about repentance, growth, etc. Um that our prayers are for the good of our brethren, if that helps. Okay. And health can be a part of that. Mental health can be a part of that. Um, spiritual maturity, emotional maturity, just praying toward all of those good 
things that God wants to bring about in others, especially when we see them uh, in peril. Okay? Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. No, I, there are demons. So the question is, the passage from Matthew referenced demons. Do I think that there are demons today, or was that just back then? I, I think there are demons today. Um, I believe exorcisms are real. Um, I, I think that, wow. Um, so I think evil is a shape-shifting thing. Uh, I think it takes various forms in various cultures in various time periods. It presents itself to confuse, to accuse, to deceive, etc. And, and I think in the culture we live in, one of the deceptions that is at work is that there are no demons. There are no spiritual, there's no spiritual evil at work in the world. Uh, the Bible very clearly supports the idea that there is evil and there are evil spirits in the world. Um, it very clearly supports the idea that, that demons must be uh, expelled in the name of Christ. Um, I, I, I do not believe that, that every... Everything that happens that's bad or sinful is, is the direct result of some demon, especially not in a brother or sister in Christ. Um, that is a theologically problematic prospect. Like, can a, can a person who is inhabited by the Holy Spirit also be demon-possessed? I don't think that's possible theologically. Um, but are demons still at work in the world? Yes, clearly. Um, and so uh, I, I, like to, I like to say, this goes back to my style, uh, you know, the demon that was assigned to me is on a beach on a tropical island with a pina colada reading a book, and he's got a little cell phone, and he's told his buddies in San Antonio, hey, if you see Tom Masterson starting to act like a good Christian, let me know, I'll fly up there and I'll do some stuff. But until then, he's doing just fine on his own at messing up his own spiritual journey. So I'm on vacation. That's supposed to be funny. <laughs> Is that not funny? Um, so I, I don't believe that every sin is the result of a demon. I believe we do a pretty good job on our own um, and that demons are still real. They're still active. Uh, so it's complicated. Don't, don't know if that helped or not. Nothing? Okay. Did I help? Uh, if, if you come across a situation, the question is, are we supposed to cast out demons? If you come across a situation that is clearly demon possession, let's roll. Let's, let's go. That's a great question. How would we know? Um, it will be clear. Uh, yeah, it, it, it should be very clear. That's all I can say. I don't know how to 
Anyone else? Can mental health issues be caused by demons? Um, anything is possible. I, I think that most, like, if you're talking about common mental health issues, they're probably the result of chemical imbalances in the brain. Um, could someone be possessed by a demon and diagnosed with something that falls under the medical criteria for mental illness, of course, sure. Yeah, I I don't know that it's worth getting in. I you know, there are all kinds of possibilities, and and easily something in that realm could be confused for something in the diagnostic realm. But I don't think it's I I, I wouldn't use that to explain all mental illness or even most, or much, or any, much of any mental illness. I think that's a category in and of itself. All right. I would like to pray again and give our worship team a chance to come back up. Father God, thank you for uh, this time, for your word, for the way in which you work in our hearts. Um, and we, we even thank you, Lord, that your word is at times inconclusive, and we don't come away knowing everything that uh, there is to know. We, we render ourselves to you uh, as those who are in need of growth and knowledge and confidence. And so we, we thank you that your word gives us those things, that we are reassured through your word of who we are in Christ now and forever. In his name we pray. Amen.